Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is a little after 9 p.m. back in our regular evening, late evening recording time uh, on Christmas Eve Eve, as it were, December 23rd. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, I hope everyone out there is getting geared up and ready for the holidays, Christmas um, in particular this weekend, if you celebrate that, um, New Year's next week. I am on vacation for the next week and a half, which I'm excited about. I hope other People have a chance to get some time off, whether it's a few days or longer than that. Uh, We've got a few different topics. So we've got the New York Times did a piece that you sent me last week uh, where the Times got access to a trove of uh, Pentagon documents uh, documenting the air war, the drone war, whatever you want to call it, that the United States has been conducting in the Middle East um, over the past seven years. And so we're going to talk about that and maybe connect that a little bit to what we talked about um, with United States and Russia and China last week. We're also going to talk about this past weekend, um, Senator Manchin declared that he was not going to vote for uh, President Biden's, one of President Biden's like signature pieces of legislation, the Build Back Better uh, bill. So uh, it was the triple B, BBB bill. Um, and that is has caused like a a wave of fallout over this past week and i think it's kind of a fascinating interpersonal story so we'll talk about that for a little bit and then we're gonna wrap with just like a like a medley of different things that have been in the news over the past week including the crazy rise of of cases with the omicron uh, variant of the of uh, the coronavirus and kind of the subsequent responses to that from both you know federal state and local levels we'll also talk about those a little bit and um, just today the verdict came down in the case of the officer who um, had shot and killed Dante Wright who was uh, uh, a 20 year old man in, in uh, Minneapolis back in uh, May I believe uh, and so we're going to talk about that verdict briefly as well so i uh, a couple big topics, a couple um, topics we'll spend a little less time on, but uh, hopefully a little something for everyone uh, this week. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, maybe we'll try and sneak in one more episode uh, before the new year so we can end the year on a high note. This this may strike a little bit more of a somber tone, but I think um, some important stuff to cover here. Uh, before we get into the somber tone, hopefully we can we can kick it off on a on a lighter a lighter note. I, Ricky, I, I consistently get good feedback about the stuff that the Cannon Hill guys send us, so I hopefully we got a, we got another good one here. Uh, and Cannon Hill Wood wants to remind all the le- all the uh, listeners of Gentlemen's Disagreement out there that the best way to build a strong economy is no different than the best way to carve wood, whittle by whittle. <laughs> Uh, these guys, these guys, Rick. All right, uh, and good. 
while they're in the process of reminding us of things, they do want to remind us that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables in Boston since 2018. That's Canon with two ends. Uh, you can check them on Instagram. You can visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Um, and you can let them know that we sent you over there. Indeed. All right. So this week is a you week in the sense that you are the one driving the the topics, the conversation, and I am in a position where I am going to be reacting to whatever angle, whatever questions you have for me, which I think is kind of exciting. I'm intrigued by what you want to do. So you had, uh, you know, as usual, we've kind of documented this on the program before our usual processes over the course of a week or two weeks, we text, we email of stories that we find interesting and relevant and that, Hey, do you want to talk about this in the pod? What about this? And, you know, I reached out to you last week about potential topics you said, hey, I just read this New York Times piece about that came out about the United States, how the United States has conducted this air war in the Middle East. And I think that would be really interesting to talk about. And I think it would be a good like, coda in some ways of the episode that we had last week discussing the United States uh, military responses, potential military responses to uh, Russia and China. So you sent me the, the articles. I read them. They were lengthy, but certainly uh, informative and so I guess I'll turn it over to you is what, what were your kind of reactions to these articles? Why did you want to talk about them here? Like, what are some thoughts that you left or that the article kind of forced you to have? Yeah. So I guess in, in many ways, the articles kind of reinforced some of what I was thinking. And I guess to back it up, you know, just to, to clue our listeners into something that I was talking to you about before we started this show today was that like I left last episode feeling like um, I hadn't I had sort of taken the taken aside or a position that I wasn't particularly proud of in in so far as I, I um, became like you know the antagonist or the or you know the pro-china um, in our in our sort of discussion as to, you know, what's going on in China. And then well, we talked a little bit more about Russia. I thought I was slightly more objective on, on that front, but in general, I was trying to make a case that actually, I don't really know what I was trying to do, but, but where the angle that I was coming from is really tied to, to what I saw in this article, um, which was <clears throat> that, there has sort of been a pattern in, you know, this article focuses on our drone campaign in Afghanistan, but you can really tie this to a lot of different military campaigns that we have had, um, you know, over the past, like, you know, post-World War II almost, um, where the sort of the focus of this is that civilian casualties in these types of conflicts, which are essentially like the American military against a more or less guerrilla type force, uh, you know, one that is not clearly demarcated and not marching in certain battle areas, but they're living amongst the people um, in these places. So in this one, Afghanistan in particular, um, how we've kind of accepted the reality of civilian casualties in these areas. And I think what I was trying to 
compare. And so, you know, one thing that we didn't really touch on when we were talking about what China was doing um, in the Xinjiang province, where uh, essentially it's a it's a Muslim minority in China that lives in this province, you know, from uh, ethnically, they're like a lot more similar to um, kind of this Central Asian region, but they're where they're located, they're a part of China. And so if you kind of, I mean, and again, now I don't know how I'm in this position again, but I'm taking what China's position is on the situation is that they're like strictly trying to uh, manage a potential like Islamist, like uprising, like a separate, like a separatist type movement within the province. Now, again, I can't make more clear that like what's going on there uh, I'm not, I'm not approving of in any way, shape or form. But the point I guess that I was trying to make is that maybe I didn't feel like the U S government is the best one to make that point, um, against China. Uh, and it's a little bit of like, a, you know, a don't throw stones if you live in glass houses, um, kind of, kind of situation. And so, Having read through those articles, I'm wondering kind of what your take on the situation is. Obviously, I'm interested to hear like what you thought of those articles in particular, um, but also like when it comes to the U.S. kind of taking this moral high ground when it comes to kind of international sort of, I don't know if disputes is the right word, but like sort of giving people moral direction and um, diplomatic direction, like, you know, where the United States stands as, as a nation that is, that is really able to do that. Well, that's a big question. Uh, all right. So I, I guess I, I guess I want to start by kind of summarizing what these articles said. Uh, and so as most people probably aware, I, all right, let's kind of do this broad overarching history of it. So United States is in these forever wars, um, starts, begins on the Bush administration in 2001 in Afghanistan, 2003 in, in Iraq. And by the latter half of that decade, people are largely tired of these wars. Um, we were promised or thought at least that they were going to be, you know, swift targeted wars and by the time that they had dragged on for half decade and close to a decade people were tired of them uh, president obama or then senator obama one of his you know central tenets was that he was going to end these wars bring troops home from iraq and afghanistan um, he gets elected he starts to bring some troops home uh, against some of the advice that he was getting from his military commanders isis crops up in um, iraq uh, iraq and into syria and Obviously, this is a huge issue for President Obama. Like, do we send troops back over there after you had promised to take them home? On the other hand, the removal of those troops had kind of created this like power vacuum that ISIS had stepped into. So it's a really complicated situation. So towards the end of the Obama administration, talking about like 2013, 2014, uh, the Obama administration essentially transitions to more of a, a air war and says that the United States is never going to 
um, have the like the troop levels at the same levels that they were in, in, at the height of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the way it's going to fight um, ISIS in Iraq and the way it's going to support the Afghani government in Afghanistan is through um, like air through air support. Um, that air support uh, largely includes the these the drone technology, which, as you mentioned, is is not brand new. Uh, it's had been in the article notes this that it had been used. Um, to some effect in um, the Persian Gulf War in the early 90s and in the, um, by NATO in the conflict in the Balkans in like the late 90s. So it was in, certainly had been used under the Bush administration as well. But obviously, as technology has improved, so and drones become like a little more ubiquitous. And obviously, we're talking about like the, the highest end military technology when we're talking about the United States military, obviously. Um, so President Obama promises, I think, quote, he said, the most precise uh, I should get that um, the the most precise air campaign in history, and that like America's extraordinary technology will allow it to continue to fight uh, ISIS and to continue to support the Afghani government while minimizing casualties to the United States military uh, population and ideally the civilian populations of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that continues that uh, sort of um, air war continues and is expanded under the Trump administration. Um, and it, it becomes really the go-to way to combat these, to, to execute the United States missions in these countries. And it's successful in a lot of ways, right? ISIS crumbles, um, and a large reason why it crumbled is because of the United States, like, air superiority and, like, all of the, the bombings and the drone strikes that the United, the United States did. Um, and the Afghani government was clearly held up by United States military aerial support, because as soon as the United States withdrew that support, the Afghani government crumbled. So in a lot of ways, like what the military, you know, did under the Obama and Trump administrations accomplished a lot of its goals. And it saved like a lot of American lives, probably. Uh, The downside to it, and as this article focuses on, is that there were probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of civilians that were killed in these airstrikes. And when uh, President Obama comes out and calls it the most precise campaign in U.S. history and says that there's going to be, you know, it's not that it's all his fault, but like in in his administration is saying that like, hey, that we're going to vet all of these strikes really carefully. We're going to minimize civilian casualties so that any civilian, civilian casualties are weighed really carefully in this process against like military advantages gained. Um, But like ultimately, you know, we're really trying to, the United States is going to do all it can to make sure that we're not killing civilians. You know, what this report and credit to the New York Times for accessing these records and, um, you know, doing the, the digging and reporting to to find these, to interview these families in, in the Middle East and, and uh, verify like these statistics is that the, the amount of civilian deaths have gone largely unreported in the United States media and has gone, has been like largely unaccountable in the United States military. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of a sickening report to read. Like you, we both mentioned, it's a, it's a lengthy report and the New York times has, I think, taken a lot of like slings and arrows over the last few years for it's um, maybe the decline of some of its journalistic standards. But this to me is like a lot of what journalism. And I think the Washington post is like kind of similarly has had, you know, when it did its expose of, of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, like the similar type of, like, this is why journalism is so important because this is information that I 
would never have gotten because it's, it wasn't publicized for seven years. And I, in without someone, you know, an organization like the New York times or like the Washington post or whomever, like to, to find and publicize this information. It's just information that like the military was clearly not going to be forthcoming with. Um, and so I guess that, that, that word they've like, it's, it's sickening to read. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard because like I said, there's a, the, the, you know, airstrikes clearly accomplished a lot of United States goals, but it comes at the expense of like devastating families all across the Middle East. Um, and that's, that's a trade-off that clearly United States government and the United States military was okay with. I'm less okay with that. I guess I didn't answer any of your questions, but I kind of, I want to stop there and see if you have anything else you want to add. And I'll get around to it. It just feels like this is a, a complicated discussion that I don't feel like I can really answer your question without right, continuing to consider this stuff and hear what your, your perspectives were. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a perfect um, preface. And I, and I think the the context there is important in that this isn't to say that people didn't, sort of consider the collateral damage that was going on in these places. I'm just not sure that it makes it any better um, that there was some sort of consideration that, all right, there, there may be like three or four children around, but we think we're going to hit four or five militants. And so as long as we get five of them, we can trade that with four children and call it a day and say that we did our, our, kind of you know we did the best we could or we you know we wait till nighttime and maybe they won't be there maybe the kids won't be there anymore or something like that and that I think the reality of the situation is obviously in in war um and and it's it's really interesting was really interesting for me to read some of the the military's like official response is that like well you know we're fighting a force that doesn't obey the rules of war and it's like well true but they're also not i mean they also didn't like i mean well the people that we were fighting there are not necessarily the same people that launched the attacks at september 11th they may be related they may have related goals but in reality we're in their country we're in a country that's not native to ours fighting a war against a against a very different kind of force. And you can't, I mean, we, we look at similarities when we talk about the Palestinians and the Israelis, right? It's not, I mean, I, I think it would be almost ridiculous to expect them to fight a war the same way that the U S would like to fight a war, just the same way that, you know, the, the, uh, the Americans in the Revolutionary War didn't line up to to stand on the battlefield and get mowed down by the British, right? Like it's there. There are very different technological and res, resource differences in the in the two sides here. So, so there is going to be some of that, and then. I don't know. It, it's it's always interesting to like put the onus on the side that's with with less resources. And now in our sort of in the military psyche or in our consciousness, it's like, well, 
you know, those, that side is evil and we're doing, and we're doing good. But when you start to peel back, well, like, what does it, what does it mean? You start to see that it doesn't feel as much like a, a struggle between good and evil, the way that we read about kind of wars in, in retrospect that like one side was the aggressor and one side um, was the defender or one side was fighting for liberty and freedom. Um, I don't know. I guess when I, I think that type of rationalization is very hard for me to digest as somebody who believes that like all all people are created with, with equal value, right? That's like kind of an American ideal. And what we're saying when we accept collateral damage of civilian lives in these places is that, no, I mean, one of the points that you made, and it's, it's a very true point, and the military takes it very seriously, is that this drone campaign greatly reduced the risk to American soldiers. I mean, it was able to be waged far, far away from the actual battlefields. But is that, is that a fair trade-off? Is that one that we should be able to make? And does that align with our ideals? Does it matter just that they're not American citizens, that they don't have the, the value? Like uh, one of the things that I was thinking of, like in a hostage situation in the United States, we would never say that like, okay, you know, there are three hostages in the building. There are four, uh, you know, bad guys who took it over. Let's just flatten the building and call it a day. You just wouldn't do that. And there's like a reason you wouldn't do that. And I don't know, though I I was struggling with that a lot when I, uh, when I was reading through this piece. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, obviously we're talking about far different scales of, of devastation, but where the United States, you know, we've talked about this before, we talked about the United States response to like Iran or North Korea potentially having nuclear weapons, where the United States still remains the only country to use nuclear weapons in conflict to, uh, to attack people. Um, and we know like in Hiroshima in particular, and also Nagasaki that like they were largely used on like civilian populations and devastated again, tens of thousands of of, of people uh, and killed them and left and like horrifically maimed them. Uh, And the justification was that it would, it saved probably hundreds of thousands of lives where we're talking about American soldiers chiefly, and maybe most importantly to the United States government, but also like Japanese soldiers as well. Like it, it ended, it ended a war, with you know aid 100,000 deaths as opposed to half a million deaths that's a justification i i i I mean these are like really like difficult moral questions of course right uh like that's a very utilitarian response of like fewer people died right like and ultimately that's and i think you can walk away from that and say like that's a win on the other hand, we're talking about people that never signed up to go to war, people that had done, were literally just like everyday people living their lives that all of a sudden they were dead. And that's what's happening here in Afghanistan, again, it, and also in Iraq and Syria. Um, and so, sure, I, th- I do think there's like some sort of weighing here because ultimately the United States government is responsible to and responsible for the United States citizens. And when we're trying to 
keep the United States citizens safe by keeping you know, the conflict over in the Middle East versus here on our borders when we're trying to protect United States service people. Um, I, I understand that that is the priority of the US, United States government. Like we, we elect our officials to take care and protect us, not necessarily to protect civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. Obviously, then to kind of circle back to your question, if if that's you know up to if that's how we're going to conduct ourselves on the world stage, then in, in what right do we have to say to to China that like you you shouldn't be like killing these people? Like I, I and because like to to your point, the point that you were trying to make is like if we're going to say like hey we're strictly responsible for our citizens. Don't worry how we handle ourselves with other people's citizens. It's just our job to keep our citizens safe. Well, then, like, how is that really different than, like, the introduction you gave of China saying, well, we're, you know, this is a potential, you know, danger area in our country, and we need to take these preemptive measures to make sure that we keep our citizens safe. Um, And I think it's fair, and I said this to you, too, is that I think in listening back to our discussion from last week, where at first I was kind of like incredulous that you were defending China, uh, I think you were really just trying to point out that, like, is is this United States just like the height of hypocrisy? And this article, I think, shows that in some ways that we are. I, I guess my takeaway, because I think that's a legitimate criticism. And so I guess my takeaway is that like the United States... The, the lack of accountability in particular in, in these drone strikes gone wrong is like galling to me. And that instead of just kind of like tossing our hands up and saying that the United States is only responsible for our citizens. And, you know, unfortunately that's kind of the reality of war, especially when you have people like ISIS or people like the Taliban that are going to use human shields, like well, civilian casualties are going to happen. Right. I just think the United States has to be better than that. It has to hold itself to a higher standard. And I, I just don't think that you can equate and say like, well, ISIS, they like the whataboutisms, I think is is not a good argument to me. And we see that argument all the time in our own politics, but it's obviously waged and it's much more consequential in international politics and military conflicts. Well, well, because ISIS is doing that, we have to do this. Because the Taliban conducts the, their warfare like this, then this is how we have to play. Where it's just like, the United States just has to be better than that and if and if we were better if we are better than that then we are in a better moral situation to call out these atrocities these human rights violations that china is going through and so to me this doesn't mean that the united states shouldn't be calling out china for their human rights abuses to me it means that we should be taking care of our own house too and i think to your in fairness to you that's kind of what you were saying is like we're so imperfect that like maybe we should be focusing on our own self i don't it's like that's one of those things that i kind of hopefully we can do both like why are we not trying to clean up all of the our issues whether it's you know with our military or how we treat minorities or women in this country while simultaneously then pointing out situations like in china or in others other countries and you know that are that are doing these terrible things yeah, I, I think that I think that that is um, that's absolutely right. I think maybe I'll I'll close in in two things. One to to bolster your argument, or not even your argument, but to sort of further your point on where America sits on this spectrum. That that and I, and and I guess I should also be clear that I'm not trying to equate the two, but simply trying to say that. That yeah, as you were saying, we have a, we also have still have a lot of work to do. But 
through Freedom of Information Acts, we were in a free press, we were actually able to kind of uncover some of these things and make it public so that people can learn about it. And, and certainly the same cannot be said um, for some of the other countries that we've uh, discussed here. Um, one, of the, one of the other things that I wanted to bring up um, in conjunction with this, but, but slightly, slightly taking a different tact. You know, before um, you make that transition, I think I know where you're going, uh, but I, there's one other thing from the article in particular that I thought was interesting. It's something that we had talked about before is that in the response to the Times question, the, the military um, spokesperson said that one of the priorities for uh, preventing civilian casualties you know, I'm kind of laugh here, like in addition to actually like caring about these people's lives, but he was like, when we kill civilians, it fuels like a generation of extremism. And that's what we've talked about before of trying to get at like the, the causes of it, where leading into the terrorist attacks in 9-11, the United States had been, after the Persian Gulf War, had been stationed in Saudi Arabia in, in and around some of like the most holy con- um, cities in, in Islam for almost a decade at that point. And there was like widespread anger about the United States being there. And I think from the United States perspective at the time, we were kind of like, what are you angry about? We just pre- prevented Kuwait from being overrun and now we're protecting Saudi Arabia. But like, that wasn't the perspective on the ground. And I think from our perspective, looking at it, like, look, what are you angry about? We got rid of ISIS. We, we prevented the Taliban from being in power. Like, shouldn't you be grateful to us? But what the people on the ground are seeing is like their family members being killed by U.S. drones. And like in that sense, there is no like grateful to the United States. It's actually quite the opposite. It's you're raising people that are angry at the United States and bitter and looking potentially for revenge, which fuels like the next generation of of um, like extremists and, and potential terrorists. And that's one of those like cycle things that I thought like really stood out to me of like the United like the military is like really aware of that. And like if. <laughs> Again, to your point, we should be more compared, like, we should care about these people because, like, they're people, and we shouldn't just be so, like, cavalier with their lives, but even if we weren't, like, even if we said the United States lives are far more important than these, like, Afghani civilian lives, we know because we've seen, like, the damage that it does to, like, these countries and then back to the United States long term, and, like, if nothing else that should have been, that needs to be going forward, like more in the minds of like U.S. military of like what we're doing here is like, maybe it helps us in the very short term, but it kills us like in the longer term. And like, we have to have like more of that long-term thinking, whether we're talking about military or politically. Totally, totally. I mean, we've had, we've heard, you know, there have been names, um, so-and-so was killed in drone strike, this or that person was head of ISIS in this region. But, I mean, we'd be deluding ourselves if we didn't think that that person was replaced by somebody almost immediately and didn't just, and that new person didn't just gain another hundred whatever followers by, you know, replaying videos of this is what America like thinks of your country and this is what they do um, to our land. Like, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't take much to spin that into uh, a propaganda and a recruitment video, which is, as you said, the mil- something that the military um, notes. And um, some some part, uh, I guess it's, we haven't moved on. And now, now I'm thinking about other things that I've been thinking about. One of the main things that you talked about um, when you were introducing it is was the lack of accountability that like uh, the military is, is actually, well, 
you know, the full extent to the civilian casualties in the, in this drone campaign are, are still not known, but there are a number of instances where like cons- confirmed civilians and like no, no combatants, no militants like were, were found among the casualties and that there was really no accountability, not from, certainly not from the person kind of pressing the button and, and launching the missile or from above from the commanders or, or whoever is approving the strikes. Right. And that, um, that to me is interesting. And, and I think we're going to, you know, it's, it's weird that, and, and maybe you'll feel this is too much of a stretch, but you know, when we're talking about um, the case in Minnesota, the Dante Wright case later today, like, I think, I think you're going to, or I think I see some, some parallels in, in that, well, you know, people have to be able to, to make these decisions, these split second decisions without the fear of somebody coming back and Monday morning quarterbacking it. And, and really that's what we've seen with this drone campaign is that like, you err on the side of, of, of killing a militant without the fear of consequences of, of not killing a militant and maybe killing somebody else. Um, and I think that has, the lack of accountability has been one of the things that, that stood out to me in the article as well something that was frustrating. Like the U S actually does make on occasion, seemingly a very rare occasion payments to families who've either suffered injuries or um, lost loved ones because of these drone campaigns that, that, you know, killed their family members mistakenly. Um, but those payments are, are few and far between. <clears throat> and that is one of the sort of the, I think one of the central issues that the Black Lives Matter movement was raising. It was not necessarily that um, police officers were acting badly, but it was that when they did, everyone was like, well, you know, they, they have a very dangerous job. So we can't really question what they're doing when they do what they do. All right. Um, and, and what it was ostensibly is this for the safety of us, we allow kind of, you know, if, if we want them to err in one direction or the other, we want them to err against a certain people and in their own safety or in the safety of, um, of, us. And so when it's abroad, it's U.S. citizens versus non-citizens. But when it's home, it may be, you know, the the divide is on more along racial lines. So I, I, I thought that that was um, something that I think is, is hard because of how, like, our ideals and our sort of what we believe as Americans is drilled into us. And, and to me, the, these are examples of just where we're, we're coming up so short of that, um, that it, yeah, I don't know. It's that, that, uh, that so something that I was just thinking about it. Uh, what do you think? Too much? Too, too, too. I mean, I, I, I like kind of started laughing when you started making that transition, like that, that analogy. And I was like, but I actually think you did a decent job with that. I don't think it's too much uh, because one of the things I was thinking about too, as I was reading it and was like, Hey, we understand that it is a really difficult and a lot of times really dangerous job. I think what's harder about like an airstrike campaign like this, is it's not 
necessarily like boots on the ground that are like forced to make these like split second decisions where if I don't shoot this person, like they, I might get shot. Right. And I think for me, I give far more latitude to troops on the ground in situations that I am never going to understand. Not that they are free to do whatever they want, but that like, Hey, I, I am going to give you a little more like room for error here. When we're talking about, you know, soldiers who are stationed in different countries or even here in the United States in the article says like pretty much like playing video games or like, Hey, like we're going to send this drone over, boom, like we got them, like we blew up the building, right? Like there's no, not to say that these are not necessarily bad people that they're, we're targeting and that who might go on and do bad things, but there doesn't seem to be an immediate danger to really any, in most cases, at least from the article that we got to any like U.S. troops or any like U.S. targets or anything like that. And so for me, there's far less uh, like margin for error there. Like there needs to be far more oversight and accountability. And this is, one of the things that I think probably people are probably like, why does he even care about this? But when um, President Biden had nominated Lloyd Austin to be the Secretary of Defense, like in just as President Trump had nominated um, General Mattis to be um, Jim Mattis to be the Secretary of Defense, like both of them had kind of asked Congress to waive requirements, which required Secretary of Defense to be out of the military for a certain number of years, because ultimately the Secretary of Defense was in, designed to be a civilian post to keep watch over the military. And so what the article I think laid out pretty clearly was that the people that are reviewing these, you know, quote unquote mistakes on these strikes are sometimes some of the same people that authorize these strikes. And certainly they're within the same like branch of the military for them. And so there's just, there's not even saying that these are bad people, but there's of course biases that you have, whether it's like confirmation bias or just a bias, like a, a desire to protect yourself or the people under you or the people that are in the same serving in the same branch of you like in yeah I, I think like that's why it's really important to have like civilian oversight of the military understanding that like it's a really difficult job but that doesn't mean that you get to kind of like act with impunity and to maybe make the transition that you were going to make earlier uh in the defense bill that just got passed um senator gillibrand from uh new york had one of the things that she really wanted in this was to treat uh, accusations of sex crimes against female military officers to be treated and be handled by like people outside of the court martial system. So like we're talking like non-military um, like tribunals. So because she feels or felt like um you know, when you're, when, you know, female uh, military members are, are bringing these charges, like they're, bringing them to often like largely male military panels who again are not necessarily bad people are trying to do the right thing but have their own biases um and so I, like i think we see this again and again whether we're talking about the military or to your point of like the police where if we don't have more unbiased people people detached from the situation you're going to get this confirmation bias that exists and you're going to get a lack of accountability maybe a uh a good spot to take a break and then we'll come back and, and dive into um, dive into a little bit of about government spending. Oh, justice will be served and the battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage. And you'll be sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. We'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. So 
so I think it's fitting that we kind of transition from uh, our advanced military technology into a, a discussion about government spending by starting with um, the recent passage of a $768 billion defense policy bill, um, which which passed with huge majorities in the House. Um, I, don't, I didn't actually catch the, the vote in the Senate, but I would imagine similarly large majorities. It, yeah, it was, it was 89 to 10 in the Senate, and I think something like 363 to 70 in the House. 363 to 70. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're talking. People don't generally agree on anything, but on military spending, everybody seems to be in agreement. Um, one of the things I wanted to call out was that it was $24 billion higher than what the Biden administration had initially called for. He was calling for the budget to sort of stay flat year on year. Um, and this, yeah, amounts to a $24 billion increase. Um, one thing I should note that I think is rarely like stated in the top line of any news headline is that this is an annual budget for uh, for defense spending. So when we talk about some of these other uh, spending packages, it, it is important to note how many years we're talking about um, because this is an annual figure. And like when we talk about Build Back Better, um, that's going to be talking about a 10-year spending project. Um, so just want to put that number out there. Um, and then talk a little bit about why we're in, in this position of such unanimity over, um, over defense spending, but when it comes to other spending packages, not only are we divided along party lines, but even intra-party, um, there seems to be not much that we can agree upon. So maybe we can start with you giving us a recap of where we stand with Build Back Better, um, but then kind of some of your thoughts on why is the only, uh, you know, why one of the only types of um, policy measures we can agree on is defense spending when it should be noted ostensibly we're not actually at war with anybody right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the answer to that is simple, right? Like you don't, you don't get reelected voting against funding the military and like making sure that our troops have what they need and that they're being paid. Right. That's, that's not a, a winning message for really anybody. Um, and even like, it, I just think like those messages are really hard to contextualize and to try to like, like get into like the intricacies and the nuances of like, well, the reason I didn't vote for this bill was because of like this, you know, twenty billion dollars in spending right here, or this provision in the bill right here. Right? Everyone's just gonna want to know, like, why didn't you vote for the bill that funds our military? Like, you're against our military? Like, it's such an easy spin. Like, no one's gonna like. Very few people do that. Why you say like such like massive supermajorities vote for these bills? Uh, like, it's it's just not politically tenable to vote against like military spending right now. How much would you estimate of that $786 billion are uh, actual like salaries for soldiers? I don't know. Do you know? I just Googled it. And all right. All right. Then, then let me guess. I, I really have no idea. Um, I will say 
very close. They're uh, the CSBA, which is, I think, one of the budget offices um, that particularly looks at the military, um, had it at 23% for fiscal year 2018. So usually those reports are pretty good. That's not bad. That's not bad. But what that also means is that 600 billion plus of those dollars is not going to soldiers' pockets. Obviously, there's another probably a decent chunk of change, maybe another 50 billion or so that's going to the Veterans Administration. But I mean, round up to 300 billion. We were, um, I was looking at these numbers a little bit. We were somewhere around the 300 billion mark um, in 2000. And so in the last 20 years, we have, um, yeah, we've gone from about 300 billion to over 2x that number. Um, and it doesn't, and, and, and it should be noted, this is an administration as agnostic, right? Went, was going up through Bush, went up in Obama and continued to go up through Trump. And here we are um, in Biden's first real budget and it's still going up. Yeah, it's a little, I mean, you're right. And the reason that I said that people are like reluctant to vote against it is right, right? It, it's a bill that's it's been voted on in past 61 years in a row. It's just kind of like an automatic, it's a sacred cow in a lot of ways. Like, and we know that we're like, we're, it just gets increased every year. And, but it's just remarkable to me. And I guess as someone that I do believe is more physically, fiscally conservative, and I'm about to go like praise Senator Manchin and like a lot of Republicans who have, have been concerned about like inflationary spending and like printing money and just doing all the things where it just feels like automatic that we're going to allocate, I think it's something like 10 or 11% of our total federal spending every year is on the military. And like, we're not even going to take a, a look at it. And when the administration asks for 720 billion, you were going to say like, that's not enough. We need more. Uh, like it's, it's, it, those things are, are hard to square with me that if you're going to be a serious fiscal conservative, like everything needs to be on the table, in my opinion. Um, and clearly it's not, it, it's just not. Um, so let's get into build back better. So this is uh, one of Biden's singular, uh, uh, significant pieces of, legislation that he had, it included many of the promises that he had made on the campaign trail back in 2020, uh, including extending like the child tax credit, which gives families money um, based on like the number of children that you have. It it included um, tons of uh, like uh, climate initiatives. Um, It was just, it was kind of like packed with all of these democratic campaign promises. And originally it had been intertwined or there was some desire to have it intertwined with the with BIF, the bipartisan infrastructure um, framework that passed originally. And a lot of Democrats, particularly in the House, said, like, hey, let's pass you know, the infrastructure bill, which we know um, was a trillion dollars, and let's combine it with this Build Back Better bill, which the final price tag was around two, $2 trillion. And let's just pass them both together. We can do the infrastructure thing, which we know was had bipartisan support. We can also get our main priorities through through this bill. Eventually, they were convinced to separate the bills with the promise that like Build Back Better would eventually be passed. Uh, the House passed it pretty much along party lines. Uh, but in the Senate, as we've mentioned many times, the 50-50 Senate, you need every single Democrat to vote for it. And then uh, Vice President Harris to break the tie in order to pass and anything um, if, we, if Republicans aren't going to come over. Uh, 
Senator Manchin from West Virginia had held this bill up for a long time. And then on Sunday morning, he went on Fox News of all places and pretty much said that, hey, like he can't get there. And so that's a no, he is not going to vote for the Build Back Better bill. While it's not actually dead, he, he more or less killed it in the moment on Sunday. And at that point, this signature legislation that Biden hoped to pass in that many Democrats had campaigned on of like, hey, we are in charge of the the presidency. We are in charge of the Senate. We are in charge of the House. We're going to get all of these things through was essentially dead because at least one member of the Democratic caucus in the Senate said that he was not going to support it. And so from that point forward, with no Republican votes, uh, the the passage of Build Back Better is is not possible. Um, So like I said, not totally dead because, of course, like they're going to go back to the table, try to find a package that fits uh, Senator Manchin's demands. But it's a fascinating thing. And I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Vice President Harris was on Charlemagne the God, who used to be a radio host, but now has a, a show on Comedy Central. Uh, she went on with him the other day and before, like they were kind of wrapping up the interview and Charlemagne asked Vice President Harris, he was like, all right, like shoot me straight. Who's the real president here? Is it Joe Biden or Joe Manchin? And Vice President Harris was furious and like stayed after it. Like her aides were trying to get her leave. And she was like, no, no. Like, and she like really addressed it forcefully about how, you know, President Biden is obviously the president, is the one in charge, is driving the legislative agenda. But I think the question really points at this belief in large portions of Washington or the country that Manchin's the one that is driving things in Washington. And there's, there's a lot of pros and cons to that. <laughs> um, so what, what do you... It's, I don't know. I just, I really find it on the guy personal level. I think it's really fascinating, like politically, like what, what's happening. Um, so yeah. What, what were your thoughts on the whole saga? Well, I heard um, a recent interview. Um, I think it was another one of those like episodes of the daily where they were trying to kind of dive into what Joe Manchin's reasons were for saying no. And he's like, well, you know, I think about inflation and, he like you know he danced around the issue and then he sort of says something like you know it's not the president but his staff did a few things that you know you can't those can't be undone and i mean obviously they're calling him a fake democrat and basically saying he's a scumbag bought and paid for by the coal lobby which mm, he might be um and he was basically like uh, yeah i don't i'm not gonna i'm not doing it whatever. I don't care. It's over. Um, I like, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I think, um, (laughs) which, uh, doesn't, is not, it's not surprising. I think Ion Presley came out and was basically like, this is exactly why we weren't going to pass infrastructure. This is why I voted no on the infrastructure bill. It's not because I didn't want those things. It's because I knew once you decouple the things that everybody needs, the other main priorities, things that we think are very important are going to fall by the wayside because of guys like Joe Manchin, guys that I knew this is essentially what she was saying is that like, from pre- from past experience, we're not going to play ball once once we took the leverage away, and I, uh, you know, I'm I'm I was sort of one of those people who was like, you know, why are we holding these things hostage for other priorities? And if I am a, a progressive congressman or congresswoman, this to me says that it, that like, yeah there's there's no reason for you to play ball if if others aren't going to play ball um in the same way and joe manchin certainly has whatever his priorities are um i don't think they're necessarily in the 
best interest of West Virginia. As a state, West Virginia would probably benefit from a lot of the things that are in Build Back Better, more so than other states that um, that many of the congressmen who are like championing the ideas are coming from that tend to be wealthier states compared to West Virginia. Um, and yet this is, this is, this is kind of where we are. I, I, I feel like I remember one of the, um, one of our defining moments from, from our last episode, I said something like, you know, if you think democracy is the be all and end all, and you were like, I do think it is. And so maybe a question for you is, does this feel democratic to you? Uh, it does. And so obviously, like the the headline is, is Manchin because he's the one holding it up. But I think what, what's a little frustrating for me, and I think one of the things that you alluded to was uh, Manchin walked away for some ideological reasons, but also some personal reasons. Like he felt like he was kind of being attacked uh, by the administration. And he, he, as you said, he was clear to say not the president himself, but like he highlighted like senior officials in the administration that kind of he felt were placing all of the blame and all of the pressure on him. And like, honestly, that's what you hear from his colleagues, whether it's in the Senate or in the House as well, of Manchin, 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 right? And I mean, that's assuming that the other 49 Democrats were on board. Like, we don't know what Kirsten Cinema would have voted on this. And that's why people like want to force a vote on it to see where they would stand. But also like, the reason all the pressure is on Manchin is because the White House just gave up on trying to include any Republicans in discussions. And like, maybe like, like maybe that was with good reason, right? Like maybe they correctly, you know, did the weighing and said, Hey, there's no way any Republicans going to vote for this bill. But I think that's a really dangerous strategy to take because then you do place all of like your hopes on one person, which does give him incredible leverage to do whatever he wants. Like to me, I'm frustrated. Like why wasn't Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or even like a Mitt Riley, why were they, why were they not included in these discussions to see if we could get a bill? Maybe it's not exactly what all like the progressive Democrats wanted, but like if we can get those people that hammered out some of these earlier bills where we talked about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, like maybe it wasn't exactly what the Biden administration wanted, but it, it was a really good bill. It had a lot of Democratic priorities, but also got 11 Republicans to vote for. Like, why were those people not included in these conversations to try to hash something out? Like, I mean, to me, that's like, it's it's poor execution of democracy. And what people said, like change Manchin's mind was the White House came out and like pretty much named Manchin like last Thursday and said like, the reason like the Democrats aren't getting it, the reason you out there are not getting what you need is because of Senator Manchin. And all of a sudden, Manchin who lives on a boat out in, in Washington, D.C., like people, like uh, there were a bunch of kayakers that, that were out there like protesting outside his boat. And he felt like his family was being targeted and people were going into West Virginia and like targeting like his you know, like I said, his relatives and family, he was like, at that point, kind of like, screw you. Like, why am I going to help you when you're out there, like, potentially, according to him, like, putting my family in danger from all these crazy people on their kayaks out there. Uh, And and so, like, it was like a personal level. He was like, I'm not helping you anymore. Like, he knows, of course, he knows where he stands, because the White House placed all of their hopes on that. And so if you wanted to argue that the way the Senate is constituted is undemocratic, and I don't agree with that, but I think there's an argument to, to be said that, you know, someone who represents, you know, a, a state that has a smaller population than Brooklyn, for example, is, is in charge of like whether or not this, these programs get implemented in the country. I think you could argue that like, hey, that's not a great system. But in terms of like, hey, like we have 51 senators here representing large numbers of states and a large portion of the population that don't agree with this bill. 
And so to me, like that is democracy. And I think it's a failure of democracy on like the White House's part. I think that that's, um, that is, that argument has a lot of merit. Um, one thing that stood out to me that was said is that, you know, Democrats were walking around as if they had like a, you know, a 55 or 60 seat majority in the Senate and it's 50, 50. And, and really, I don't know what the, if, if uh, Baker is a rhino, then, then mansions a dino or something. <laughs> like it's uh and that was known. It was, I mean, it, it was known going into this election. It was known historically that, hey, we're going to leave Manchin there because most likely if we run a progressive Democrat in West Virginia, he's going to lose. Or yeah, she- to be clear, like Trump won West Virginia by 40 points. Like Manchin doesn't is in no danger politically from voting no on this. Like most right. of his constituents actually don't want to see him passing legislation for Biden. So it's like what everyone kind of like is all over him, but like, how could you do this? You're a Democrat. Well, it's like, well, he's a West Virginia Democrat. Like he faces zero backlash from this in, in much of West Virginia. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think it's an inconsequential point that a state like West Virginia that has less than 2 million people, I mean, you were talking about Brooklyn. I mean, it's, yeah, it like, there are probably boroughs in Brooklyn that have more people than live in West Virginia. So that there's gotta be part of that, that, that feels like this, the Senate, which is an institution that gets two seats per state is for its role in sort of passing legislation that it has equal power with the house is, is a little bit problematic. If your notion of democracy is that kind of like the popular vote rules, right? Like we have, I don't know, but like you can talk about what happened in the state of West Virginia, but nationally Biden won by over 5 million or 6 million votes, maybe even more than that. I don't, I don't recall the final number. That doesn't mean there weren't a ton of votes for Trump and it shouldn't, and that it shouldn't be, that there shouldn't be some negotiation. There definitely should. And, and perhaps this is like how the founding fathers envisioned like a forced negotiation to happen. And I think you're right folks like Romney and Murkowski and Collins should have been approached, but it's, you know, in a place like Utah or even Maine, like if they do one thing that's seen as pro Biden, that could be the end of their political careers in those States because of how these primaries are running. So it's, I think it's, I think it's, I, I don't know that you could ever see the outcome that that you're envisioning because of, again, the way our primary system works in that if any if anybody actually, you know, dares cross that picket line or, you know, they get burned at the state kind of deal that way too many mixed metaphors that don't really follow there. But you know what I'm saying? Like if they're if they're seen as playing uh, playing ball with the other team, then all of a sudden it's. I mean, that's a lot of fodder for a primary challenge. And when you know who the, who your base is, um, all of a sudden you're going to be in, in trouble. Um, one of the things I did want to come back to though, um, is that Manchin did talk about inflation. And so a, the build back better plan had already been trimmed down by about a trillion dollars from its original $2 trillion price tag to a little over one, 1.2 or so. Um, 
that number is over 10 years. So it was from 2022 through, or maybe, yeah, 22 to 31 or 30, 23 to 32, something like that. It was, it's, it's a long time horizon. Um, it's a mixture of new spending um, incre- that are like partially offset by revenue increases in taxes. Uh, there are also a lot of like tax credits that count towards like the overall spending that we're talking about, but isn't direct payments of cash, which we don't like um, for a number of reasons, some of which are valid, some of which are not. Um, but that, I mean, rough math here, that's $120 billion a year. We literally just approved almost a three quarter of a billion dollar uh, spending package for the, for the military without batting an eye. So the idea that this particular bill is going to lead to runaway inflation, whereas some t- other types of government spending are not, strikes me as odd. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. But it's like, I just re- I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. It's like, if you were going to be worried about inflation, I think that you should be. Um, like I've said that before. I think that's a legitimate concern. Uh, then ev- nothing should be like a sacred cow. Like everything should be put under the microscope and say like, how do we, how do we kind of trim spending here? How do we, how do we trim spending there? Um, so yeah, I, I would love, I've, I've said this many times, I would love a little more consistency from elected officials. I think you know, the inflation discussion is probably a decent spot to transition a bit to kind of the latest and greatest on the COVID front. Um, And so maybe we'll take a second. And when we come back, we'll kind of do a little brief on, uh, on Omicron, but also how it relates to kind of where the Biden administration is politically, but also Um, I think what's on a lot of folks' minds, which is uh, this idea of inflation. We came from the West Virginia coal mines and the Rocky Mountains and the Western skies. And we can skin a buck, we can run a trot line, and a country boy can survive. Country folks can So I think the reason that I think that it makes sense to try and and tie uh, kind of some of these concerns about inflation with with what's going on in the virus is that, you know, most people will point to the virus driven supply chain disruptions as the reason that we're seeing as, as the reason, as like sort of the predominant driver of inflation. I think the last inflation figure was somewhere north of 5%, which is the highest that it's been in, um, I don't know if you have the exact number. It's been, it's been a long time since we've ever seen inflation, since we've seen inflation that high, probably since like the early 2000s, I would guess. Um, uh, just like the quick little... So 6.8% in November, which was the highest since June of 1982. 1982. So do you, do you, do you remember what was going on in, in 1982? Well, I mean, I wasn't alive, but this is like the beginning of Reagan, like Reaganomics. This is like where it takes place. Like, Yeah, yeah it follows um, kind of the oil crisis, and yeah. which again, 
is more or less a big disruption in supply and not a huge overheating of demand. And so this is, this is going to be me putting back on my economics 101 hat and saying that, you know, prices in our market system are a function of supply and demand. The two things that are going to drive prices up is either you have a spike in demand, which is what a lot of people are sort of pointing at economic stimulus and overspending in the government as driving increased demand, or you have a sharp reduction in supply, which is essentially they're just fewer goods. Same amount of people who want to buy them means that the prices of those goods are going to go up quarter over quarter. And I think what we've been seeing or been hearing, like the port disruptions in LA um, from just you know, fewer people returning to work for a number of reasons, um, but the virus kind of not with you know being one of the main drivers um, means that we have sort of a, a tightening of that supply, which really you know the the question is, I guess that everyone's trying to answer is is this inflation transitory or not? Is it something that we'll see kind of come back down to normal levels once we get past this virus, which we don't seem to be getting past anytime soon, or at least not our framing of it or and or how we're dealing with it. Um, but I feel like you have a little bit of a different take. I do have a different take in the sense that I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying in that there are clear supply chain issues around the world due to the, you know, this pandemic that's happened. Uh, like that's definitely driving some of the inflation, but I do think that, the economy in many ways came like roaring back, you know, that's a really relative term, but like certainly from where it was, you know, a year ago, like starting maybe this, this summer, um, this spring, this summer. And I think a large driver for that was like, people had money in their pockets. And I think a lot of people would say like, that's good, right? Of course, it's good that people have money. But I think one of the main reasons that people had money to spend is that the government doled out literally trillions of dollars in, in payments over the both on the Trump and Biden administrations. Uh, and I think that it's it's hard for me to see that that didn't also impact the demand side of things. And so I guess like while I acknowledge that many of the inflationary factors are on the supply side of things, I do I do feel like that some, if not many, were also on, on the demand side of things and just like the continuous spending of money. And we've talked about this before, but like if you look at just like big picture, if you step back, you know, Congress and the Biden administration passed a big you know, relief package back in March, which was over a trillion dollars. We passed the bill, the build back, uh, the the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, last month, which was over a trillion dollars. Right, and that's addition to all the other spending. So it's like we're, we're spending trillions and trillions of dollars as we watch inflation hit forty-year highs. It's hard to say that it's not connected at all. Um, I, I I think like maybe that gets it's it's. So uh, it, maybe it seems like so like natural connection that like it's like, oh, it's clear, like we're spending all this money on the one hand, ipso facto inflation, you know, inflation is going up. Therefore, all of this money spent is causing inflation. Right? I think that's just like an easy narrative to build. And certainly we're going to hear on like a lot of conservative websites. Maybe it's not that simple. I agree with you, but I think it would be a little naive to think that it's, it's not contributing at all to in, in inflation. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that is, I mean, yeah, no, you're certainly right. I think it would be difficult to disprove a connection between these big increases in government spending and inflation. What I would say is that a trillion dollars sounds like a ton of money and it, it is a ton of money, but we have 350 million or so people in the U S a trillion dollars split 350 million ways, about $3,000 additional per household. Now, of course, when we multiply those numbers, yeah, we still get a trillion and that is a lot. U.S. GDP somewhere around, somewhere north of 20 trillion, give or take a, a bit, right? So it's not an inconsequential amount. But if we think about what individuals could possibly do with an extra two, three thousand dollars aside from putting some pressure on ordinary goods, which you don't, you know, just having extra money in your pocket doesn't mean you're going to like buy three extra gallons of milk a day. I still think that the supply chain issues, which we still think will get better once this virus gets more under control, should start to address some of those inflationary pressures that are caused by stimulus. Additionally, I think we're starting to see it a lot of places that this money is not really getting handed out the way that we kind of expected it to. Like a lot of states have stimulus money that was essentially approved and, you know, doled out by federal governments that they haven't spent. Um, I know for one right now, Massachusetts, which did uh, a pretty good job of managing its unemployment system is now in kind of a hole to the federal government because some of those unemployment payments were actually like loans from the government that that the state of Massachusetts now needs to pay back. Um, so, you know, there there are some, I think, reasons to believe that not as much just like free funny money from the government, you know, Uncle Sam dollars um, will end up remaining in circulation. But I mean, I would say progressives like me have for a long time been saying that things like inflation are just like not stuff you need to worry about. And uh, now that now that it is stuff that we need to worry about, we're just trying to make reasons for why it's too, it's too early to worry about it. So I, I will say there are certainly concerning signs um, and you know everything that you say is right. I, I do know that in the past, governments have, you know, in hindsight, we would say that they made mistakes in altering their monetary policy specifically to like tamp down on inflation, making it more difficult for people to, you know, access liquid funds in the way that we have been driving our economy for the past like 15 years on very low interest. Um, and now the Fed is sort of poised to do uh, some things to that to try and quell inflation. How long they do that for, I think, could spell sort of maybe some other problems for you know the next decade to come. That's definitely things that we'll have to keep an eye on. And 
I am no economist, just took a couple economics classes in college. <laughs> yeah, but I, like as we've mentioned like repeatedly here, like the actual the federal government actually has very little, and we're talking about the president in particular, actually has very little control over these like large-scale macroeconomic factors like inflation. And so I think what's difficult is that people hurt like in their like wallets or pocketbooks, right? Like when you go to the gas station and gas is so much more, you know, $1.50 more than it was this time last year, like that, that stands out to you when you go to the grocery store and your bill is six and a half percent higher than it was last year. Like that, that's like really impacting families. And then you look and you're like, well, what is the government doing about it? They've spent all this money, right? I think that you kind of, it's an easy way to point the finger at. I think it's, it's really difficult for the Biden administration or any administration facing like rising inflation that's largely out of their control. Those are just bad headlines and there's not a ton they can do to fix it. Uh, and so like, you just kind of like, if we're just talking like politically, like the Biden administration just has to hope that some of these supply chain issues, and they, of course there's things they can tweak around the margins in terms of like getting more truck drivers on the road or opening up capacities for ports. Like there's small things that we can do, but like we live in a very global economy, which is great, but like there's lots of things that are just outside the Biden administration's control. And they just got to hope by... <laughs> By any, you know, in six, eight months from now, that inflation isn't still this high because that's gonna, it's gonna lead to a, a disastrous midterms if, if that's the case. Yeah, um, I was in uh, in the stop and shop here in uh, in Southie the other day, and some I was just uh, comparing my different tomato sauces, and some woman came over to me with a can of tomatoes, and she was like, "Can you believe this? A dollar seventy nine. And I was like, "Oh, I don't know what it was before," and she's like. That's high, right? And I was like, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course it is, ma'am. <laughs> of course it is, lady that's come up to me and start complaining about this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, certainly people are are feeling it. And um, uh, yeah, I've been in a, for, you know, we're in a fortunate position where that kind of thing is, no, nobody likes it. Um, but for us, it, it's not as dire as, as, people living paycheck to paycheck so um right right so like me being like oh it's macroeconomic factors <laughs> you know like no no one cares about that they're yeah. like this guy is in office here what's he doing to fix that right yeah which is well well i perhaps leave that there i i want to um just kind of mention well not mention i think this is something that everyone is a reality that everybody is living in it as you mentioned the the case count has been skyrocketing um, with the sort of uncovering of the new variant, Omicron. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, what, uh, what, what are your, do you have thoughts? What are your thoughts? It's frustrating. It's exhausting. People are tired. I'm tired of kind of talking about it, of dealing with it, of these, these new variants that, that shift. Um it's, unfortunately, I think that's just the reality. And I think for me, it's you do the best that you can to keep yourself healthy. And that includes getting vaccinated and getting um, a booster shot and, uh, you know, wearing masks in, in, in some in certain locations um, and not seeing certain people um, for, you know, whatever personal reasons I have. I just try to keep yourself as, as healthy and safe as possible and then just try to live your life as like we're clearly not going back to where we were in March and April of 2020, nor should we. Um, so it's really just trying to, you know, deal with what we know is going to exist uh, in whether a large or small scale for 
you know, the immediate future here. We look back when we started this thing, we look back at the pandemic of 1918 and we like, and looking at that, that was a, a several year pandemic. And I think that's just unfortunately the nature of these things until you know, more people here in the United States and most especially more people in the rest of the world get vaccinations because otherwise like it's just it, the conditions are ripe for variants to spread. And so you kind of mentioned to me before we started, like, we're at you know, how many Greek letters do we know? And I think I've seen that, like, we'll probably reach Omega at some point. Like, I know that Omega is the end of the Greek alphabet. And like, we're probably going to get to the Omega variant at some point. And that's like depressing in some ways, but it's also just like, all right, you, I think we just have to acknowledge like, that's the reality of the situation. And until that we can get people as protected as possible, like that's going to continue to exist. And, um, you know, for me, I'm not going to go back to how I was living a year and a half ago. It's just trying to take all of the precautions that I feel are necessary to keep myself and, you know, my family and friends as, as safe as possible. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the right philosophy. I mean, it should definitely be noted that vaccinations, even though they haven't seemed to be able to prevent people from catching Omicron, still seem to be very effective at keeping people out of the hospitals, which is really, you know, the problem. And, and um, remembering in kind of uh, in 2020 and in, in early 2021, before the vaccines, you know, still having to like fight that rumor that this is kind of like the, that, you know, that COVID is like the flu and it's, it's obviously not, it's been way worse than that, but with the prevalence of vaccines in the U S I think we will start having to talk about like, when do we get to an endemic stage, which is we're going to live with this thing, but we have treatments to manage people who get sick. Like we have treatments for the flu. We have, we know more about the virus and how it works Um, And we have vaccines to keep people, even those who do end up getting infected, to keep them out of hospital. So all of these things, um, we will start to have to reframe how we think about it. And it's it's terrible. But like I started thinking about um, I forget what like Trump was saying back in early March, like we have the most cases because we're the only ones testing or something. And at some point, um, there is going to be a degree of that. But your your point on, on vaccines and kind of global distribution, I think, is very important. We're, we're really seeing how our inability to get the rest of the world vaccinated, and, you know, you can certainly argue on whether or not that's our responsibility, but um, much like a number of different sort of global situations that we are experiencing, it almost doesn't matter whether it's our responsibility or not, it's going to affect us one way or another. Um, And if we have the means, you know, maybe that's something to think about, um, particularly kind of opening up the, the secrets of Moderna and Pfizer, which seem to be the two most effective vaccines and clearly the most effective vaccination technologies um, that are available, which we should be extremely proud of, um, and find ways to like compensate those companies and then make sure that we get those vaccines out to everybody. Um, but perhaps a 
discussion for another day. Yeah, I think we've had enough discussions, but the, to leave us with a, a final discussion, we, we mentioned several times this episode that the verdict in for the police officer that shot and killed Dante Wright in Minneapolis back in April came down just this afternoon. Um, the police officer was uh, found guilty of manslaughter, which carries a minimum sentence of 11 years in prison. Um, she has not been sentenced yet. That'll probably come either tomorrow or maybe more likely next week. Um, the prosecution is going to ask for more jail time. The defense is obviously going to ask for, for less jail time. Um, but I nothing else to say. It's a, obviously a tragic situation. I think I would point people back to, we talked about this case in conjunction with um, several other cases back in episode 26 with um, Rocco Alexis, who was the police officer from um, Arizona. If people remember that episode, it's probably one of our very best episodes. And so you have, if you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to listen to it just period. But I think, you know, Ricky, it, it resonated with me earlier when you were talking about how we as the American public kind of, uh, rationalize some of these things by like being like, well, they're in really difficult positions. And I, I, I would think I was definitely guilty of that. Even talking to Rocco of being like, in some ways I feel badly for the, obviously you're devastated for, you know, Dante Wright, who was, who was killed and, and his you know family and friends. Um, but I also, I felt badly for the police officer. You know, she clearly made a mistake. And I mean, it's on like the videos, like immediately afterwards, she's like, Oh my goodness, I made a mistake. I shot him. I, I pulled the wrong gun. And like, and ultimately like, this is, this is devastating for her life. Obviously she, I mean, not only did she lose her job, but now she's facing a decade, maybe several decades in prison. Like it's um, in my initial reaction with man, like I feel, I feel badly for the mistake, but ultimately like if I want to stand by my earlier statement of like, we got to hold these people to higher standards. Like this is what people signed up for. And Rocco, I think was very swift about like being like, she doesn't deserve any of your sympathy here. Like we are police officers. We are trained and stuff like this. Like it's inexcusable to make a mistake in a situation like this, because this mistake cost this young man, his life. And like, there doesn't need to be any, what about like, what about ism about Dante, Wright? Like ultimately a police officer took the life of a 20 year old young man. And, um, and ultimately she should be held accountable. And so I guess like the last thing to say is that like, we do, I do think we need to continue to emphasize and point out these situations where we are, as an American society, like holding these people accountable because it wasn't normal before and it has become you know, more normal now. And if you look at that jury, it was nine white people, two Asian people and one black person. And if you had given me that jury, I don't know, certainly 50 years ago, but maybe even 10 years ago, I don't know that you're getting a verdict to convict a, a white police officer of, of manslaughter. And so as always, we, we put this with a large caveat that there's like a long, long way to go in our policing and our criminal justice system. But this does appear that at least there is some justice for the family of Dante Wright. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I, I struggle with this one as you did. Like it, this is one that didn't feel like it was as clear cut as, um, as the, you know, the Chauvin case and, and George Floyd. Um, and yet, all right, I guess maybe my parting thought on this is that nothing about the law has changed here over the last 20 years. What we're seeing as different is what people, the average person, which is kind of what we assume our jury is made up of, um, views as reasonable for a police officer to do and whether that is i'm 
I guess maybe I'll, I'll, I'll leave this question out there. Is that, is that, does that say something good about our justice system that it can evolve with our consciousness without actually any active action to change the written law? Or is that, is that some flaw that we're, that we have to live with? Maybe we'll call it there. Folks can ponder on that one. (laughs) Yeah. By the time everyone listens to this, um, if you celebrate Christmas, we hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas. We hope you had some time off and enjoyed it, um, you know, hopefully safely with all, with friends and and family. And, um, you know, we wish everyone a happy new year next week. All right, buddy. If I don't talk to you, have a Merry Christmas. You too. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not 
Share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.